Welcome to Oikos Church. You guys excited to be here? Well, it is uh, such a joy uh, to be able to uh, have the privilege of delivering the message today. So um, today is the first week of our new series entitled Mars Hill. All right. And so just to give you um, an overview is that we're continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts for quite a while now. And, um, and so what we're going to look at this week, as well as the following, is Paul uh, being sent to Athens, not necessarily intentionally, but because what he did is that he was on a missionary journey with Timothy and Silas. They went to, they were in Philippi, they were in jail, and then they went to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they met uh, the people that really were not all that receptive to the word, although there were some. And so the Judaizers were the ones that hung on, clung on to the, to the old law and typically would enforce circumcision and works righteousness upon the Christians. And so Paul, Timothy, and Silas were fleeing uh, Thessalonica to Berea. And in Berea, um, the harvest was plentiful. And there were a lot of people who came to faith in Berea. However, the good Judaizers, they followed them uh, to Berea. And so then uh, they went ahead and sent Paul uh, to Athens to await uh, Timothy and Silas's arrival. And so where we get the Mars Hill from is that that's actually the Roman terminology. Uh, the Greek terminology would be the Areopagus. And so maybe some of you are familiar with that. And so literally it means the rock of Ares, which was the Greek god of war. All right. And so as Paul went in and talked at the Areopagus, talked at Mars Hill, he got to speak with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And if we know anything about um, ancient Greece and all that kind of stuff, is that they loved philosophy. And really, we can find a lot of things that are very similar um, between ancient Greece and our time here uh, in Houston. So, before we jump into today's text, I want to bring this to you. So, as Paul was sent to Athens for safety, Paul would then simply wait for Timothy and Silas to come to Athens. So once again, he wasn't there intentionally, but he was there to wait. So let's dive into the text. We'll be in Acts 17, 16, and 17. Let's read. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He spoke daily. So the first thing that I'd like to tackle is that Paul wasn't in Athens intentionally. He was there to wait. However, because he knew his mission, he seized opportunities. Because he knew that really we don't go anywhere by accident, he had a mission to do. And so he was active in his waiting active in his waiting. He could not idly stand by. And so as he looked around and he walked around the city, 
he noticed all the idols. And his heart, his spirit was provoked. Was provoked. He was provoked to action. The Greek word there is paroxuno. You guys say that with me? Paroxuno. His spirit was just provoked to action. He couldn't just idly stand by. But he knew that the Lord brought him to Athens for a reason. He had to represent God in the Stoic and Epicurean society. So let me explain Epicureanism real quick. Um, so basically, at that time, there was the Stoics, which were, um, if any of you are German, I mean, you can probably understand that, that, that being Stoic was basically that you didn't show a lot of emotion in order to, um, uh, in order to kind of allow the world to affect you. The Epicureans would typically be eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Okay? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So these were the philosophers that he was, um, that he was debating with. So he was active in his waiting. The second thing is that Paul valued relational capital. He valued relational capital. And he was a good cultural anthropologist. So what he did is that he would, he would get to know uh, the society. He would get to know. He would keep his eyes and ears open. And so in order to build relationships, he knew that he had to, um, he had to learn about them. And so I guess the question for us this morning is, do we value relational capital? So let me tell you a little bit about what I mean when I say capital is that the Lord has given us worldly resources. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus actually tells us uh, that we need to use our worldly resources to make friends. It might sound kind of shallow. In other words, he wants us to invest wisely. He wants to invest capital wisely. So when I say capital, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual capital. Okay. How deep is your relationship with the Lord? How often are you talking with him? Okay. So how are you growing this resource? Okay. So your relationship with God. The next one would be relational capital. Is Are you investing in people? How many deposits are you making into other people's life? Okay. How deep do your relationships go? How many relationships do you have? The next one we talk about is physical capital. Talk about time and energy. And so when we think about um, that kind of thing is how do we spend our time? Do we care about our appearance? Do we exercise well? How well is our physical well-being? Then intellectual might be uh, that how vast is our knowledge, our wisdom, etc. And then the last one is financial, uh, which is basically any sort of material possession, money in the bank, any liquid assets, if you will. And so these are things that we talk about in five capitals, and they're up on the screen in the order that really God desires us. And so we're talking about as Paul embraces and is growing his relational capital in Athens at Mars Hill. He's noticing things about people so that he can meet them where, they're, where they are at. So the third thing is that Paul does is that he creates a predictable pattern. So that if you go ahead and you look at Paul's missionary journey, that whenever he goes into a new city... So we see this, that when he went to Corinth, he went to the synagogue. Uh, when he went to Thessalonica, 
he went to the synagogue. When he went to Berea, he went to the synagogue. And so you can see it's kind of predictable. It's predictable for his disciples, for Timothy and Silas. It's also predictable that this is just what Paul does. Um, but also, too, is that when he doesn't, when he does go into a city that doesn't have a synagogue, is that um, he'll still go to where the Jews are. Like when he met Lydia in the town of Lystra, he went down to the water. And so he creates these predictable patterns. And so there's several benefits that happen when we have predictable patterns. Is that really it gives access to people. And it gives people access to our lives. So let's talk about Houston. What would it look like to be a good cultural anthropologist in our city? So imagine that you're coming to Houston for the first time. And you find out where the good spot is to meet people. So maybe you're going to go downtown, and you're going to sit on a park bench, and you're just going to watch people. Or maybe you're here in the Heights on 19th Street. You're sitting at a coffee shop. Or maybe you're in Montrose at some sort of open-air cafe. So wherever kind of you want to picture yourself, what are you hearing people talk about? Are they talking about God? Are they talking about spirituality? Are they talking about their relationships? Are they complaining about their marriage? What do they look like? Are they dressed nice? Are they not? Are people single? Are people heterosexual, homosexual? Just what do you know about our city? What would people observe if they went ahead and sat and spent some time just looking? What would you observe? What have you observed about Houston? whether you're on the west or east side of town, up 290, here in Garden Oaks, what do you know about your network of relationships, the people around you? Because I guarantee that you won't be able to reach them or even meet them where they're at if you're not a good cultural anthropologist. We have to learn about people. Because what people talk about and, how, and the appearances that they give, we can learn a lot. And so what kind of, if we're looking in the lens of this capital. How do they place the capital in their lives? How do they value them? Because what the Lord wants for us to value is spiritual, then relational, then physical, then intellectual, and then financial. Do you think in our city that one of our idols that we might see is financial, that we might see that financial up at the top, that possibly people make most of their decisions based on the security of their job, the security of their career. Or maybe they value spiritual capital up there as well. But what if it's spiritual capital that isn't actually life-giving? What if it's actually spiritual capital that's actually a false capital, where people are trying to find hope and significance in the universe, in energy. In any other religion. So what do we see in our culture? Now, unlike the Mars Hill, the Greeks had pillars and pillars and idols of that you could actually visibly see, that they would they would worship these idols. And um, that for unlike us, though, even though we don't have those, we do have um, all these other kind of idols in our lives. 
And so these capitals aren't bad. They've been given to us in order to flourish. And so the question for us this morning is, what are we idolizing? What would Paul say if he spent time with you? If he had to observe your home life, your work life, what would he be observing? Would his spirit be provoked to action because he sees God's people placing maybe that financial capital at the top or idolizing their family in an unhealthy way? Or maybe spending too much time investing in physical capital where you're completely obsessed with your physical appearance and finding your hope and comfort in that. Or maybe you're worshiping your degree, whatever it might be. So perhaps in Houston at the southern tip of the Bible Belt, we might be quick to say that Houstonians value spiritual capital. However, go back to what I said a little bit ago. We might be able to say the same thing about the Athenians. So let's read what the Apostle Paul said to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers at Mars Hill. Verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council at Mars Hill, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and idols. The Stoics, Epicureans, and other Athenians, they had this spiritual capital. They had the spiritual capital because they were there debating all the time uh, at Mars Hill just about the latest and greatest ideas and that they, the way they worshipped all these gods. And so Paul recognized this, and this is where he found common ground. And actually, um, I, I like this. I like what he said. So he said that, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. So the original Greek there, it's actually a double entendre. All right? And so if you guys know what the double entendre is, that a word has two meanings, one's positive and one's negative. And so it actually means um, religious, overly religious, but it can also mean way too superstitious. And so Paul, I like what he does, is that he actually says, you are very religious in every way. So at the same time, he's praising them, but also demeaning them at the same time, saying you're way off. And so I'm not going to let you guys get away with not saying this Greek word with me. It's probably the hardest one that I've ever uh, had to say. So here we go. Dicey Dehi Monosteros. All right. I'm going to make you say that. All right. Say Dicey Dehi Monosteros. All right. So now you guys know a Greek double entendre. All right. And so he was able to find this common language, which was important. He was able to, because he invested in his intellectual capital a little bit, that he knew what they believed. He was a good cultural anthropologist. And he was, while he was waiting for Timothy and Silas, he was active. And so he was learning about the culture. So he was able to notice that you are very religious. But as a spiritual capital, 
that was based on lies. And so the Greeks had several gods, um, and the Romans too. They had about 20. And typically the, the Romans would have a, a Roman name for them, and um, the Greeks would have another name. So Ares is the Greek name, uh, and then Mars is the Roman name. And so in, 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 uh, in Athens was named after the god Athena, uh, which is the god of wisdom. So while Houston doesn't boast these large statues, we know that there are idols in our city center, as well as objects of worship. And we are a city who have spiritual capital invested, I think, in two different things. That here in Houston, I think we have a lot of pious religiosity that come from the churches, but then we also have a bunch of empty spiritualism. I think the Lord's calling us to something greater. Matthew 7, verse 21 is what Jesus says. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Yikes. I think the question that we can pull from that is, does Jesus know us? Does Jesus know us? And do we know him? If we're careful to observe our Houston culture, our American culture, probably prevalent in just Western culture in general, especially amongst millennials, um, is that in our culture today, we can see that most people, there's three characteristics, is that most people want to do good. I think we can grab hold of that, that most people want to do good. Do you guys want to do good? So we have a sense of responsibility to the world and to others. There's kind of, you know, people probably a good understanding that with relationship comes responsibility. And it's hard for us to see the world falling apart around us and not do something about it. Sense of moral obligation. On the surface, this doesn't sound like a bad thing. But it can definitely be a good thing if it's used to leverage God's work. So the next characteristic. So first we have do good, and the next one is be happy. People want to be happy. They want to be freed from physical pain. They want to be freed from bad relationships. Um, they just want a good quality of life. Now one of the things too is that the Epicureans can be labeled as hedonists. Um, there, there was a prior group to them that probably was more accurately hedonistic. However, with the Epicureans, though, is that it was primarily a just, they wanted an absence of, um, of physical pain, um, and that pleasure was the highest good. And so that I'm going to make decisions, and I'm going to carry my life, and make the decisions that bring me the least amount of pain, Okay. So that's kind of uh, what the Epicureans would be. And so very, there's a lot of similarities. And so today, our prevailing culture, people want to do good, 
They want to be happy. And I think sometimes as Christians, it's easy for us to say that God doesn't want us to be happy. I think I've probably said that a time or two. Um, but the truth is, is that, that God wants his people to flourish. He wants us to be happy. It doesn't mean it's the absence of pain and suffering, because we know that as Christians that God is calling us to follow Jesus. And Jesus said that because I suffered, you will suffer. And he also said that because I was persecuted, you will be persecuted. And so what we have here is a promise of God that even in those trials and sufferings and persecution is that we can still be blessed. We can still be happy. We can still have joy. Because what's interesting is if you dive into the Greek in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, that oftentimes we, we read it as blessed, is, blessed are the meek, blessed are this, blessed are that. But the Greek word there, which is makarios, it actually means happy, blessed. And I like the last part. It actually means to be envied. To be envied. And so what I think is amazing is that when we live life together as a family on mission, is that um, we get to live this life that other people envy. And so I know for myself, it's asking the question, do I find happiness in the Lord? So much so that people are envious. And do people want what we have? Because we recognize that as followers of Jesus, as God's children, is that we have true hope, true freedom, and true love, and true happiness that doesn't disappoint. This spiritual capital that the rest of our city is investing in is a false, empty spirituality. All right, so so far we have do good, be happy. And then the third thing that is in this prevailing worldview is that God exists. God exists. He's loving and kind, but he's also remote and not overly involved. So if we're good cultural anthropologists here in our city, regardless of the neck of the woods we're in, and we look around and start talking to people who, who don't follow Jesus, as chances are they want to do good, they want to be happy, they believe in God, uh, but that he is not like he doesn't really care to be involved with us. He doesn't have a hands-on approach. He's just fairly distant and remains far away. Do you feel that God is distant and far away? When hard times hit, when things don't go your way, do you feel ever that God really doesn't care? Or that he's so far away that there's nothing he could even do. How would this change your life if you actually knew that God was not just near you, but actually inside of you? We know that the Holy Spirit has made his home in our hearts, that Christ has made his home in our hearts, and that we actually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that he can use us to do good and fill us with true happiness. So this actually is, has been coined, this kind of this new worldview, uh, by Christian Smith in his book, Soul Searching. And he identifies this as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, so the do-good. Therapeutic, 
be happy, deism, belief in a God, but that he's remote and doesn't really care and isn't interested. So I think the Houston culture is more like the Athenian culture than we care to admit. And when Paul was there in Athens, his heart, his spirit was provoked, that paroxuno, it was provoked. He couldn't stand idly by. And so for us, I know that's kind of convicted me is if I go to the supermarket and I hear people talking around me that don't have the same hope that I have, and that they, I know that they hope, if they're looking for hope and love and salvation and empty spirituality, is that my heart breaks? Does your heart break? Does your heart break for people who don't know Jesus? Are you stirred to action or can you stand idly by? Because we know that the Bible is clear that the words of Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And what a beautiful thing it is, is that we get to live within the kingdom of heaven right now. That we can't get fooled into thinking that heaven is just this place where you go when you die. We live in the now, but not yet. So God, Jesus is reigning here. And so we get to experience what heaven is like. But yet not all the way, because we still are affected by sin. And so do you care enough about people to actually share with them the freedom in Jesus? To share with them the hope in Jesus? Does your heart get provoked to invest in people, to invite them into your life? Or do we settle for the moralistic, therapeutic deism because that's not right? Because we know that God is real, that he is with us, and he cares about us. So what now? The first thing that I made mention to when we looked at the Apostle Paul was to be active in your waiting. To be active in your waiting. That wherever you go, know that if you're waiting for a coffee at Starbucks, how can you be active in your waiting? How can you be a good cultural anthropologist in that moment? How can you keep your ears and eyes open to what's happening around you? If you're in line at the grocery store, if you're waiting to go into Reliant or Energy Stadium or the Astros, or you're out to dinner, how can you be a good cultural anthropologist and be active in your waiting? I know that for Ashley and I, when we were selling our house, I don't ever want to do that again. And I know that there's, I know the Putmans, you're right there. It is, um, is an intense emotional roller coaster. And so Ashley and I had to continue to, what does this look like to be active in our waiting? What is the Lord saying to us as we are waiting? Are there opportunities um, in the midst of this waiting period that the Lord is calling us to? Be active in our waiting so that we might be provoked to actually step in and live out the, fam the, the, the mode of the family business that we each have been called to simply because of the faith we have in Jesus. That we get to be a part of the family business, the inheritors of God's family business. And we're called to make disciples. We represent and the beautiful thing is that when we're active in our waiting, that we get to carry out all power and authority of Jesus. 
that we get to actually bring a, make a difference, that we actually provide the opportunity for people to rub shoulders with the kingdom of God simply by being in your presence. What an incredible thing. That we bear the news that God is near. The second thing is that Paul did was become a good cultural anthropologist. And I think the question at the bottom line is that is that we, do we truly love people? I think if we truly love people, we won't shut our eyes to what people are talking about. We won't separate ourselves from the world. Is that we care enough to actually ask questions and to get to know people. Because if we don't know anybody, then how on earth can we think that we can share the gospel with them or that they can receive it? Starts with a relationship. Starts with investing in that relational capital so that it can be traded in for spiritual capital. Because I guarantee if you don't have a relationship with somebody, that the gospel is going to seem way more foreign than it should be. And then the third thing is that Paul embraced wherever he went, he maintained that predictable pattern. Whenever he went to a city that had a synagogue, he would go to the synagogue. That was his starting place. People knew that Paul would go to a synagogue. If they wanted to hear Paul, they would meet him at the synagogue. He would also go to the marketplace to be around people. Predictable patterns. And I think for us is that the predictable patterns that we can have in our life is that it gives people access to our life. It gives people access. And what we see here, what's really neat, is that when Paul was preaching at the synagogue in the marketplace, he didn't have to, to go find the way to the Areopagus to Mars Hill, is that the philosophers, the Stoics and Epicureans went to him, and then they invited him um, to the high council, to, to Mars Hill. That's what it says in Acts 17, 19. Then they took him to the high council of the city, Mars Hill. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. And so it's this predictable pattern in our lives that gives people the opportunity to enter into our lives so that we can build solid relationships, that we can grow and invest in that relational capital so that we can begin to invest in others. And had the Apostle Paul not established his predictable patterns, his ministry would have been more than likely unstable, unstable, and unreproducible. Because remember, Paul, he had Timothy and Silas following him wherever he went. So Jesus, you know, he had his 12 disciples, and he had the three that were closest to him. And so uh, whenever we are leading and discipling people, we need to have something that is reproducible and predictable. Because the predictability in the way we live our lives, it provides people stability, it provides people solidarity, and it provides them um, the comfort that they need to be able to be willing to invest in their relationship with you. So the question, do you have predictable patterns? If you're like me, it does not come naturally that you kind of you like variety, and so you're always looking for something new and all this kind of stuff. And I think there is something a little bit deeper than that, though, and it's a fear of commitment. So if you're kind of like me and naturally have a natural fear of commitment, establish, establishing a predictable pattern will need accountability, and your love for people will need to drive you to make that commitment. 
do, you, do people know when you are available? And are you willing to make sacrifices in order to give people access to your life? So I'll tell you a story. Um, so we, if you know anything about Oikos, you know that we have our gathered church, but then we have our scattered church, that we hold both in equal value, so that we desire to be a family on mission together, that we actually are living life together, that we have relationships that go beyond this temple time. And so Ashley and I had started this missional community, what was supposed to be uh, about a year ago. And, uh, you know, we had some faithful people who are coming, but it just kind of lacked some vision, et cetera. And as we kind of pulled back and have been praying and have been active in our waiting over the last year, we um, decided, you know what, we don't necessarily have a predictable pattern in our life. So how on earth are people going to know that they have access to our life? Because if you have any desire to hang out with us, you might think, well, they are probably at home pulling their hair out with all the, the 202 and all this kind of stuff and just overwhelmed with kids. So, you know, I don't want to bog, I don't want to bug them or bother them or anything like that. And so I'm just, I'm not going to spend time with them. Um, and, and so we didn't have a clear access point into our life. And so what we did was that we saw that the Lord had opened a door for us at Happy Fats. Okay. Happy Fats is a, is a, Heights-based, Heights-located, hot dog and dessert joint on White Oak on 6th Street. And Susan, the owner, uh, I had played concerts there. Many of you guys have come seen us play music there before. But she had said, Jason, every Friday night is yours. Do whatever you want, um, and uh, happy to have you. So, so I knew that the Lord was moving in there. So we decided, all right, and this is a leap of faith for us, and I had to be challenged in this area, is that we had to commit every Friday we were going to be there from 6 to 7, or 6 to 7.30 every Friday night. Now, Ashley and I had no idea what exactly this was going to turn into, um, but Aaron had encouraged us and invited us to really just, just take this time, create a predictable pattern, and see what the Lord does. And he said, even if no one else shows up, continue to do it and see what the Lord does. And I had to overcome some fear with just playing music around a table. Um, and just like, because kind of without the stage, I really didn't feel like I had authority to actually play music. Um, but uh, so we just kind of did it family style. And it's been a beautiful thing that we get to uh, play music with our family around the table. Here's what's been awesome is we've seen the fruit of that predictable pattern. So we do it every Friday. And so as I've told people about kind of what we're doing, they ask, so when's the next time you're going to go at Happy Fest? Oh, Friday. Okay. Then people ask again, well, it's Friday. And so that you know that because the Fells family has a predictable pattern, you have access to our lives every Friday. It brings stability too, because if you're unsure with what night someone is doing things, or if it might be your first time at attending a missional community, or your first time um, entering into a new set of relationships, knowing when and where in the consistency people then can feel more empowered to actually attend because they, they can rely on it. And that little fear of, well, are they having it tonight or not, is sometimes enough where people will decide not to come. And so Friday nights, 6 p.m. at Happy Fats, the Phelps has committed. And I'll tell you, it's been a beautiful thing that I had to overcome my selfishness of sacrificing every Friday night. And I'll tell you that it has become my favorite night of the week, we have seen 
a number of people commit to us in this night. Because we go every Friday, we're building relationships with the staff. We're building relationships with people at the restaurant. And so the predictable patterns provides an opportunity to get to know people and access to build relationships. And it's also helped me build relationships, too, with a number of musicians that play on Sunday mornings, is that I frequent the same coffee shops, and so then you run into people, and they know where to meet me, and they know that there's a good chance they'll see me. So do you have predictable patterns? It can be difficult, but it provides that solidarity and stability. Paul knew where to meet his people, and he, uh, had he strayed from his pattern, he might have not been invited to proclaim the gospel at Mars Hill. All right, Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing before the council at Mars Hill, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I along, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. We have the same opportunity. We live in a city with spiritual people. We live in a city with people that are moralistic, therapeutic deists, that they want to do good. They want to be happy. And their belief in God is that he's some distant cosmic force that isn't very interested. We know as God's children that we are called to serve others. We are called to love others. We are called to do good, not to earn our identity, but because God has said, you are my child, he's bestowed upon us an identity that from that will naturally flow doing good. Be happy. Without Christ, we will never experience true happiness. Without Christ, our lives will be short of being envied. We know that in Christ, there is freedom. And that we know that even in the hardest times, is that we have this peace that we know that the world cannot offer. And we know that Jesus is alive and he desires to know you, to walk with you, to empower you, to free you, to bless you. We have these three things at the core of who we are as God's children. And we have a world who is so desperate to know. And so will you guys allow yourselves to be active in your waiting? Will you commit to that? Will you start keeping your eyes open, your ears open, and start caring about people to learn about them so that you can invest in relationships so that you can proclaim the gospel to them because you know that without hope in Jesus is that we spend eternity without him? Will you be disciplined in creating and being a good cultural anthropologist? And that will you commit to having predictable patterns and inviting people into your rhythm of life? People are looking for God inside themselves. They're looking for God in the energy of the universe. 
They're looking to Oprah for their theology. They're going to emptying your mind of negative thoughts in order to escape pain and find inner peace. They're going to mosques. They're going to temples. Scientology, paying to have engrams removed from your mind, investing that financial capital to to think more clearly. They're looking for worth in their physical appearance and ability. They're looking for security in their finances and in their careers. They're looking for acceptance in relationships and significance and answers in their intellect. And behind all that, they're hoping that God really does love them. They're hoping there's something more. They're hoping that God wants to know them. And they're hoping for that future. They're hoping for that abundant life. We are the bearers of good news. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the inheritors, along with Jesus, of God's entire kingdom. We are representatives of who God is. And wherever you go, you have the authority to do all the work of God. You have the authority to heal people. You have the authority to cast out demons. You have the authority to love and to serve and to represent Jesus. So will your heart be provoked? That paroxuno, provoked to action because you know that God is good. So be active in your waiting. Be good cultural anthropologists and establish predictable patterns. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God for they will return to me with their whole heart. May that verse continue to lead us into loving people, to being willing to invest that relational capital because we know that God is calling us to come to him, to lay down our burdens to him, to believe in him by faith, to follow Jesus, to become fishers of men, to change the world, to help people have the opportunity to rub shoulders with the kingdom of God because in the kingdom of God, there, there is no sadness. There is no imprisonment. There's love and there's peace and there's hope and there's perfection. And that we get to experience that even here on this earth in the now, but not yet. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have called us to be your sons and daughters. You have placed us here in Houston for a reason. I pray that our hearts would break, that our hearts would be provoked, that we can't stand idly by and ignore our neighbors, that we might seek to serve and to love because, Lord, you first loved us. We thank you that we don't have to earn your love. Is that you created us in your image. And you desire to know us, to love us, to be loved by us. 
And that's why we're here today, to worship you for who you are, who you've called us to be, what you're doing in us and through us. So help us, Lord, in your mercy. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.